Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage our panelists, Bob Sutton, Zaina Barraquette, Saul Gertis, and Bonnie Smim. Good afternoon. Um, my name's Bob Sutton. Uh, I'm a professor at Stanford. And what we're going to do this afternoon is uh, we have three panelists. They've been introduced. I'll talk about them when they start their talk. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to hear three different stories about large-scale organizational change. That, that well, Two of them were involved in sort of coaching, and one of them involved in implementing herself. And the way that these stories are similar is that all three of these folks were involved in the Stanford D School or the Hasso-Plattner Institute of Design in sort of five sentences or less what the D School does. It's a teaching and sort of outreach unit at Stanford. It's interdisciplinary. And what we focus on is taking design thinking and, uh, and, and applying it to solving problems, everything from uh, designing new products, new customer experiences, New experience like a class focused on the process of death recently, in fact, and uh, organizational change. And that's what we're going to hear about is organizational change from these folks. Uh, just to give you a little taste for how we think about uh, design thinking, we have very hands-on classes. Uh, especially you're going to hear from um, Zaina and Saul. They're going to talk about a hands-on class that they were a member of called D-Leadership, where we take pairs of students. We put them into organizations, everything from the opera, as you will hear, to General Motors, and have them actually try to bring about um, change. Some of our mottos, which are related to lean startup, do to think, get uncomfortable with being uncomfortable, everything's a prototype. That's spiritually sort of where we are coming from. Um, I think that's actually enough introduction because their stories are so good. I think that we should, we should um, get started. Let me start out with Zaina Barakat. So I'll introduce her just a little bit more, and then she'll spend about 10 minutes telling her story. Um, so Zaina has a, has a background in um, news. She actually worked for ABC News, uh, writing news, including for Ted Koppel. Then she was at the New York Times. Uh, she made and then managed people who made those little films. Now she's at IDEO, and, uh, and she's uh, leading some of their efforts around organizational change. And she's going to tell you about a story that her and Madhav, her partner who isn't here, led at the San Francisco Opera. And you talk about an old, large, rigid organization. That'll do. OK, Zaina, you're on. So the San Francisco Opera is a 93-year-old organization. How many of you work for organizations that old? Oh. Wow. Oh. All right. Wow. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. Let's try to do something <laughs> together. Um, so San Francisco Opera came to the D School and said, we want to uh, do something really amazing. We want more people to come to the Opera House. It's 3,000 3, seat theater. And uh, they thought that was their biggest challenge. What we did right off the bat is reframe their challenge. Something you want to look at large organizations, what you typically think of as your problem the most obvious thing, you could be missing it. So for the opera, it's not how do you get people to come to the 3,000-seat theater. It's how do you get people to fall in love with opera in the first place. So what we did with the opera is work with them and had them meet people they would never typically meet, uh, meet users. You know, I'll use that, that term in this crowd. Um, meet audience members who are not yet their audience members. They came to us and said, We've, we, we already know what everyone thinks. But they were only talking to the people 
who already went to the opera, and they were doing it through surveys. So one of the things we did was we created a very low-fi prototype uh, with cardboard boxes and uh, iPads, and we went to the ferry building, which is down a few piers down, and they were mortified. We're talking about the San Francisco Opera. They put on performances hundreds of thousands of dollars. They put their, their money into doing it. They, they only present the best version of themselves to people. So here they come with this very lo-fi prototype. You have the executives, executives from the opera, including uh, the guy who is now the director of the opera, who just started in September. And we had him just talk to people. We pulled people aside. Do you have five minutes? We want to show you this prototype. The prototype was really rough, but it was basically creating a very immersive uh, performance experience the minute you walk in the door. So we were doing this in a very crude way. In one hour, the uh, now director of the opera, Matthew Shivlock, said, I had never gotten that perspective before. They were, they were lumping 20, 30, 40-year-olds together as if they were all one group. They were, never, they were not realizing that they had very different user needs based on their, um, where they were in their lives, um, their experiences with, with performing arts. Uh, so it was one thing was get out there and actually talk to people, talk to people you want to reach, and do it in a very crude way, and you'll learn a lot more than you expect. You don't have to spend lots of money doing this. Another thing we did was we put them in front of people that they had never met before. For example, the head of uh, Young, Gifted, and Black, which is a performing arts uh, group of six to 10-year-olds of African-American uh, youth. And we talked to the director. And we said, tell us, how do you get people to come to your shows? They have performances where they have two, 3,000 people coming to their performances. And he said, when you want a different community to come to you, you have to go to the community. And that was very striking for the people of the opera. So the result of our work over literally two months, what happened was they came using design thinking. They had empathy for uh, their, the people who were not coming to the opera. They had uh, a different perspective by talking to people in other industries, including a wedding planner, a cantor at a Jewish synagogue, a head, of, a head waitress at a, a Sonoma restaurant, um, the head of Alamo Draft House in San, in San Francisco. So they talked to people in other industries uh, to get inspired with design ideas. Um, and by the end, they launched a whole new arm of the San Francisco Opera um, called San Francisco Opera Lab. And what they did was they started with a prototype. They took over a bar in Hayes Valley, uh, and they took over this bar, and it was a Monday night. They thought best at Tops, they were going to get 100 people to come. They had 400 people. They had a line around the block. What they did was they flipped everything on its side just a little bit. What if we go to the community? So they took over a bar. When you walked in, it wasn't a ticket charge. It was a cover charge. It was $10. Then you walk in, and the ushers are not who you'd think of as ushers. They were opera fanatics who were dressed to the nines in, in wigs and in, in beautiful costumes. And they weren't trying to make you feel like you didn't belong. In fact, they were t educating you about what you were listening to, what they were wearing. That was another insight they got from people, was they were intimidated to walk into the space. And then on stage were their Adler fellows, these amazing performers who were performing beautiful music and really challenging art. So they weren't dumbing down the art, but they were doing it wearing jeans and a t-shirt. So they took 
the, the result of this was the audience was an audience that they had never reached before. They were going around talking to people, and they were getting a whole new audience that was appreciating a very complex art form. So it wasn't about changing the art form, it was about changing everything around it, about the experience around it. So their problem, how do we get people to the big opera house? Well, that's not actually your goal. Your goal is how do you reach as many people as possible and get them to fall in love with the art? And so the solution is not let's get more people to the opera house, it's how do you get people to really become passionate about your art form so that they're willing to be invested in you. And that means going out into the community and uh, reaching people that way. All right, so just we got a minute. So can you talk a little bit about the long-term effects? Because all three of them right. have had long-term effects. Right. So uh, what started out as one night at a bar after two months of, of uh, working with the Sanford D School uh, turned into this whole arm of the San Francisco Opera where they've put on uh, five pop-up events around the city. But they've also... Uh, they have a 300-seat black box theater that that arm of the San Francisco Opera is now putting on performances in, a, in the small black box theater. Right. So, so that's, that's another thing that I, I should have said at the beginning. All three of these changes are interesting because they're sort of bottom up or at least sort of sideways. And all of them have actually lasted. So that, they're actually pretty interesting. OK, let's go on to Saul. So this, this is uh, Saul Gerdes. So when we first met Saul, and this is something we do at the Stanford D School. This is a regular class. It's called D Leadership, where we take uh, uh, well tuition-paying students. But every now and then, we sneak in an executive. So he was, at that time, an executive at Citrix and sort of played hooky from work for 10 weeks. And I think it ruined his life because uh, he went and he started something called Method Garage. And uh, they do sort of customer service strategy design. And so that's what he does now. And he's going to describe, uh, you think it's hard making change at uh, the opera. He, he um, and his, his partner, Elizabeth, who is in here, they led changes at a social service agency, the Golden Gate Regional Center. So Saul, tell us your story. All right. Well, thank you. First of all, I didn't play hooky from work. This was, uh, you didn't? This was my second job. Ah, uh, we saw a lot of you. Uh, amazing 12 weeks with Golden Gate Regional Center. Um, so what I'd like to do is to kind of come at this from, from a few lessons learned, I think, throughout this program with Golden Gate Regional, but then also looking back at, I had the benefit of, of having full freedom at Citrix to run as many experiments as I possibly could, whether it was running in-house incubators, putting in internal employees with external startups in incubators. Uh, we, were, we were driving a lot of kind of culture change uh, around design thinking and lean. Um, so there, there are a couple of lessons we've learned from there, from Golden Gate Re Regional Center, and then starting my own business. You know, what have I applied? What's worked? Uh, and what, what hasn't worked? So um, one, one takeaway that, that this is really for, for leaders. How many leaders out there are driving some sort of culture change within their organizations, whether it's lean or it's design thinking. Mm -hmm. Okay, so quite a few. So the, the first one is all around setting the right conditions as a leader to, to allow for creativity or innovation or lean or whatever different approaches to thrive. And this is probably an hour talk j just getting into this, but I'd say one, one aspect is around safety and, and kind of encouraging your employees to take risk. And this is so important. It, it's it goes beyond just saying it. Yes, we, we take risk and failure is fine, but actually demonstrating it. And I've, I've got a kind of a flashback to Golden Gate Regional Center. There was a period in this project where the teams were, were brainstorming and coming up with tons of ideas on, on how to shorten the time frame for assessments uh, for, for onboarding. 
And one of the ideas was, oh, why don't we get a, a Winnebago? And we'll, we'll, we'll pack it full of, of doctors and social workers, and we'll go out into the, you know, into the, the world, and we'll go meet them where, where they are. And it was a crazy idea, and that part of this is, is coming up with lots of crazy ideas, but we locked in on it. We thought this would be a great example to show, hey, it's okay to take some risk. Uh, so the team was a little bit nervous about calling the, the executive director, right? That's the equivalent of your, your CEO. Uh, but they did. They called him up and said, hey, the team said they'll go rent a, a Winnebago, an RV from, you know, rent, rent America, I think it's called. Uh, would you mind if we went out? We want to run an experiment in the field. And he said yes which was remarkable. This is a guy who's in suit and tie every single day, probably on weekends too. Um, it, was mind, it was so un empowering for the team to be unlocked. That ended up being one of the big turning points in the project, not because it was a good idea, it was a terrible idea. But they went out into the field and they learned so much just being stuck together. They were running brainstorms in the Winnebago about how can we bring this back to more of the employees at our company. And somebody suggested another crazy idea, Let, let's bring them all to the D school. And we'll, we'll give them a crash course. And we said, well, okay, let's do it. And again, it, it, was, it was less about the process. It was about taking risk, which we did, by the way. We invited the entire company and ran a crash course and, and uh, put the executive director on stage. And he once again reiterated and showed his commitment. So uh, I'd say demonstrating your commitment to taking risk. Uh, another example, um, I took that learning, by the way. Back at Citrix, we were running an incubator. And, and I tried to create that same condition. And I had been there for 17 years, lots of goodwill. I felt like I was, you know, almost had tenure. Uh, so I could do anything, right? I, it didn't matter for me. And so I, I committed to the team, no matter what happens, I want you to take risks. And I promise you, and I physically gave them a get out of jail free card. Anything you do, it doesn't matter. I'll take the fall for it. I can do it. I've been here forever. I don't care. And, and I committed to it. And I gave it to them. And I said, and I don't expect that anyone has these at the end of the program. And again, it's just, it was words. I wasn't going to really, you know, cover for them, or maybe I would if it was. It didn't matter. It was enough, <laughs> it was enough for them to, to go out and actually, hey, let's take some risk. Let's go put it on the App Store without telling legal, right? And they started to do that. Um, a, second, a second area is it's, it's around having a coach or a mentor. Um, it's something that's really common in the startup community, but if, if you go into an incubator or an accelerator, the coaching and the mentoring that you get paired up with different mentors is usually the most impactful, the most valuable thing that these teams walk out with. And there was something special about that, and, and that, was, that was our role, really, at Golden Gate Regional Center. We weren't doing the work. We were the coaches. We were the mentors. And, and I think it helps in a few ways. There's kind of an analogy with you know, having a, a workout partner or, or a personal trainer. When you have a personal trainer, you don't want to you don't want to screw up in front of them, right? They, they hold you accountable. They push you personally when you need to be pushed in a different way that your boss would push you. Uh, another thing is when you're living it, and I've noticed this starting my own company. I mean, I've I've read all the books. I teach. We 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 coach all the time. But somehow, when you're in the middle of it, when you're in the fog, it's hard to see the environment from the outside. It's hard to give yourself the advice you would give yourself if if you were coaching yourself. And so we, we take an active approach and make sure that we have a list of mentors that we trust, and we consistently reach out and say, hey, am I crazy here? You know, what, this is what I'm thinking, but I think the fog is getting to me. I can't see it. And we ask them for help to look in from the outside. Um, I'd say a third, a third reason why this is valuable, not unlike professional sports players, 
they have trainers, right? These guys know everything there is to know about the sports they're playing, but there's still, there's still somebody from the outside as a trainer. Um, I, I don't, I, I'm still not sure why this context doesn't happen as often in corporations. Like, well, there are, there, there's mentorships, but not like at an innovation level or as like the equivalent of a startup. And so I guess my advice there is, Create that for your teams. Find, find whether it's internally somewhere in your company, but somebody who can kind of see the world from the outside, or you have to go outside. Get, get a coach, get a mentor for your teams, because they need that, even if it's an internal, internal project as they move. Um, so I'd say those are, the, those are the, two, the two big takeaways that we got. As far as Golden Gate Regional Center, this team made the quickest transformation I, I'd ever seen in 12 weeks. The, the celebrations of things that we started during here, Fridays was like design review Friday where they would, they would show their prototypes, talk about the experiments they ran, the feedback they learned. That's gone on. Two years later, they still have those celebrations on Friday. And it is, it's an opportunity to celebrate how people are working. It's an opportunity for leadership to lean in and ask questions. How many users did you talk to? What did you hear? What did you learn? You know, I don't care if it's successful or not. What did you learn this week? And they're still driving this forward. And so, from the, so, so, yeah. so I'll talk a little bit about what Golden Gate Regional Center does because honestly, it's one of the most, it's a classic dreary bureaucracy yeah. and they brought life in the, uh, so, I mean, yeah. uh, Describe a little bit about yeah. what so you're Golden Gate, into. Yeah, Golden Gate, for, how, how many of you are familiar with uh, the Regional Center? Okay, so, so they're a nonprofit organization funded by the, the state government, state and federal government and they, they serve uh, individuals with uh, developmental disabilities from, from youngsters all the way through adults. So, so it's mostly uh, caseworkers and social workers. And they really sit in the middle of the government and the funding or the lack, the lack thereof and all the policies and all the restriction that you can imagine. Um, the, the providers of services of uh, physical therapy, of transportation, of housing, right, that are providing the services and the families and the individuals, and it's a really, really tough place to innovate. They have, they have all the reasons in the world to say, no, we can't do it, right? From, from privacy concerns about data, they can't go out and raise money. Uh, it's all coming from the government. When it gets cut, what do they do? And it's here in San Francisco, Golden Gate Regional Center, they're literally in the shadows of these tech giants. They're in the Twitter building. Like, they're actually, you know, Social workers who, who can barely pay for transportation, you know, to, to come to work, who are limited, uh, although rent goes through the roof here, they're limited on salaries. We're asking these teams to, to innovate, to think big, get crazy. So this was this was a real culture shock uh, for this group. It's had long-term effects on the patient or on the client experience too. Absolutely, right? yeah. So they shortened the, the whole on, onboarding and assessment process. They cut that in half. And all the other ideas that they were running through, they continued prototyping them. And so they have this idea of uh, the, social, the, the social worker 2.0 idea where, where social workers are untethered from the desk, from the office. They're out in the field serving those that they're there to serve, but unlocking it with, with technology where they can kind of take their work with them. They can do things in the field. There's no more papers that have to be faxed and signed. I mean, yeah, it, it seems crazy that that was still going on, but still papers had to be faxed and signed and come back and then go back. Um, so they're, they're constantly driving even new ways to get funded through, through grants and things like that, you know, and competing innovation programs to see if they could get grants to get tablets uh, for the teams. 
So I was like, great progress. So I like the story because there's hope. Okay, now the third one, and we'll, we'll get, we're going to have plenty of time for Q&A. So, so this is, uh, so thanks all. So this is, this is Bonnie Simi. So our, our, she's going to tell her story. So as opposed to being in more of a coaching role, Bonnie was more in an executive role. And let me describe Bonnie's background since she's done like maybe way too many things. So she's a three-time Olympian in the luge. She was Bonnie Warner in those days. Uh, she's a pilot. She's actually still an active pilot. She still flies actively for JetBlue. I first met Bonnie in the earliest days of the D school. And uh, I always kind of joke about Bonnie at JetBlue. She's now head of JetBlue Ventures. But they, she, she's had a lot of jobs at JetBlue, but they're always the same job, which is to fix what's most broken. So uh, JetBlue had a little problem that Bonnie was involved in leading to fix, and she's going to tell that story. Sure, sure. So. Um First of all, I think a lot of people, when you think of, if you think of design thinking or human-centered design or user design, you think of creating a better product. Uh, or perhaps it's the you know, UX on uh, UI UX and website or an app. Um, but when I was, I was going to the D school, I was thinking about, you know, how could you apply this in a service? So I work at JetBlue. Uh, it's an uh, airline for those who haven't. I know a lot of folks fly Virgin here until Virgin moved with, in with Grandpa up there with, uh, with Alaska. But uh, anyway, so we have, uh, I, fly, uh, um, I work for JetBlue. And um, this was in the earlier stage. So JetBlue at the time was still um, a bit of a startup itself. And um, there was a crisis that happened. You know, there are crises that happen whether you're in a large organization or a small organization or if you're somewhere in between. And JetBlue was sort of uh, at this time about seven or eight years old at this point. So it was in that, that time where it's growing up. And a um, massive snowstorm comes into J uh, to JFK, but it's kind of a mix. It's a mix of rain, it's a mix of snow, and a new kind of, of, of uh, I won't say it's new, it's been around forever, of ice pellets, but the way that the, the manufacturers for the de-icing manuals had not yet incorporated ice pellets into it. So what happened was, on this particular infamous day in JetBlue's history, was aircraft were allowed to arrive at JFK, but they could not depart. Uh, and so flights are coming in, uh, people are getting on the planes and pushing back to the gate, but could not leave. And then all of a sudden, the ice pellets became ice and actually locked the planes to the ground, physically. Planes couldn't move. Uh, not only that, but uh, so it was complete gridlock. The, the, the tarmac was so icy, buses couldn't go out to get the customers. So we're talking massive, massive, massive gridlock. There are people stuck on planes for 10 hours. And this, this happening to a company whose goal is to deliver ma magnificent service. So it, it's absolutely positively, and we are still relatively new as a company. Just that very week, Business Week was come, came out with a, with a story on the cover of the top uh, 25 customer service champions of a company. And JetBlue was number four. Just before they shipped out the, uh, the magazine, this happened. It was front page news. It was everywhere. And uh, they had to, they, and rather than reprinting the cover, they just put an X over it. How's that for, uh, um, so this was, uh, this was a chat. I was actually, at that time, um, I was a pilot at JetBlue. And I had taken some time off, and I was in Bob's class. Um, I'm seeing what's going on. And I'm thinking, how can I apply this? So I went back. Uh, to JetBlue at the end of the, of the year. And now what happens in those crises? The board of directors comes in. There's leadership changes. Of course, they go out and hire consultants. A year goes by, and not much had changed. There was some changes needed for some systems. They're $5 million, took a long time. 
the employees or crew members at JetBlue were getting very frustrated, myself included, because we knew what needed to happen. Because in the end of the day, in an operation, and that's in the end what an airline is or many of the companies, this, what we deliver is a service, not a product, and it's run through an operation. And for those maybe of wonder, I have my little origami project here. Um, I use this as an example. So in a service organization, the service is, is done by various people in the chain. So you might have the aircraft router, and then you have the maintenance guy that brings the airplane to the gate, and then you've got the dispatcher, and then you've got the fueler, and then you've got the gate agent, and then you have the flight attendant, and you have the pilot, and each one of these have a certain role. But none of them have the whole big picture. They may know what's on either side of the chain, but they don't have the big picture. But they do know what's happening with their area, and if there's one break in it, the whole thing falls apart. And what, that's what happened. That's what happened on that day. And so I'm going back to, to JetBlue, and we were, a year had gone by, and I started thinking, you know, you can't solve these operational challenges from the top down. It has to be from the bottom up. I called it the wisdom of the crowds. So I went to our leadership, and I said, look, while you're still doing the consultant thing and everything else, with all due respect to consultants, yeah. sorry. <laughs> um, how about doing something internally? Let me, let me just work with a group of pilots and flight attendants and gate agents and crew schedulers. So uh, we got the blessing to have um, 100 crew members. Uh, we picked people who we thought um, could, were open to taking ideas. They were paid, their hourly wage, but nothing more. And the idea was to share what was your life like from the moment a, a weather storm is coming and you know it's coming a, a day from now, all the way through the weather um, event until 24 hours afterwards. And we mapped out the whole process. We gave them post-it notes. And the post-it notes were yellow if it was a step in the process, you know, arrive at the airport, go through security, those kinds of things. Um, and it was a pink post-it if there were problems with the process. So they would add, they'd map the whole thing out, and they put, there were a lot more pink ones than there were yellow ones. We then, in that process, in those workshops, we had six workshops across disciplinary. Uh, we watched and observed who was the most uh, energetic and working with each other. And we selected about 40 of them to work on this project over 12 weeks. There's a magic about the 12 weeks type of thing. I don't think 12 weeks really works out well to take those pink post-it notes and come up with some of the solutions. Uh, we said you don't have a million dollars, um, but you do have the, the resources that you are aware of. And uh, we each, they each had about $1,000 in their little special project to see what would come out of the whole thing. And what was fascinating what occurred, and we believed over the course of this process um, that the small things would make a difference. And if the small things started to make a difference and we had a big enough impact with that, it would start to change the way people thought about the organization. And an example of this, which had a dramatic effect, uh, all airlines have a central place where their reservation systems are and they have a central place where the airline operations are, called a system operations. So when there's a weather event coming, the Captain Kirk of the airline who's sitting in, in the system operations who's going to decide if it's your flight that's canceled or your flight, that person decides in, in advance how many flights to cancel. And he'll come up with this cancellation list. Well, at JetBlue, there are five Captain Kirks because they won 24-7, 365. They all have different shifts, and they don't overlap except for a handoff period. 
Each one of them had their separate way of creating this list, which was at the time on a spreadsheet, believe it or not. They would send that spreadsheet to the customer support center in Salt Lake City, who would upload it into the system, they would cancel the flights, uh, would notify all the customers of their canceled flights. Well, in the command center, they actually cancel the flights, and in Salt Lake, they would notify the customers. But the spreadsheets were five different formats. The hourly agent in Salt Lake would simply just change the spreadsheet to match it, but inevitably there would be a human error. So they would cancel flight 123. But in Salt Lake, the people on flight 124 might be notified. <laughs> Believe it or not. So these simple things, all it took was to pull the, the reservation agent said, well, we like Joe's spreadsheet better than Jim's. Jim didn't know that Joe's was different. We pulled it together and automatically reduced some of the false notifications. The other item that was another example, and these are simple things but had massive cultural change, in the system command center, the dispatchers had one computer screen. And yet they had to have five different tabs open for the various items. They had been asking for their senior leadership, their leadership team just above them, their managers, to get more computer screens. And there were tight budgets and such, and it never made it through the IT procurement process. So we simply, there were 10 dispatch desks, we simply went out with a credit card and bought 20 monitors, changed them right away. The dispatchers started being part of the process. So in the end of the day, after the 12-week uh, the process, we came up with 100 projects. The total budget of the 100 projects was about $750,000. We implemented, we had six months to implement the projects. Uh, we implemented all but about four of them. And by the time we finished the last project, we went right into the uh, summer season. And our on-time performance dramatically changed uh, positively. We reduced our cancellations uh, in half. Uh, and the morale did, did increase. So fortunately, JetBlue has not been on the cover of Business Week in a negative way since then. So that was kind of the process. So, uh, so I think that's a good way to end our, our three stories. And, and you can see that all three of them, are they're vastly different organizations. It's interesting because they're all, all three also a little bit bottom up. And all three of them still have some stickiness. So we're going to open it up for general questions in about five minutes. So I guess you've got some uh, fancy technology. So start um, asking your questions if that's possible. But I'm going to ask um, each, each one of these folks a, a question. Let's start with Zaina. And just um, whenever you go through organizational change processes, uh, one thing that I think um, and I know about all three of them. There was always times when, the, when things were a little bit messy and a little bit ugly. So I want you to think, um, each of you, about the darkest hour of the change process you were involved in and describe how you got through it and helped your team get through it. So the big lesson for the opera was having empathy for the users it wanted to reach, right? So one challenge that we had for, the, uh, for this uh, team at the opera was, I want you to go. You have three weeks. I want you to go to a roller derby event, or a rock concert, or something that you would never typically go to, because that's what you're asking of your audience, right? You're asking an audience that never goes to the opera to go out of your comfort zone to come to you. So you need to do the same thing. You need to have empathy for, for the audience you want to reach. Go to one event you'd never, ever go to. Of the seven people, how many do you think did this? One, one person out of the seven. They had three weeks to do this. And that was a big lesson, right? That was a, that was a dark moment, because I said, how exactly do you want to get people to the opera if you're not willing to go outside of your comfort zone? You're asking a lot of people right now. 
So that was a big turning point because they realized how much they needed to change and go outside of their small world um, and their very insular world to reach uh, this audience that they were craving. So they needed to, that was a big lesson for them was empathy and how to gain that. And, and the, the pain of failure the pain is painful, of, but it instructs. Yeah. And I think what was even more embarrassing than going to the ferry building with cardboard boxes for the opera people was uh, not being able to do a simple task that was asked of them because they're perfectionists. Uh, so I think the, the embarrassment of that also got them. It's kind of, because it reminds me of one of my favorite things they did at IDEA where Zena now works was they were trying to get people at bicycle shops to have more empathy for customers who walk into a bicycle shop and it seems weird. So they took, mostly guys, they sent them to Sephora, the makeup store, and had them buy makeup so they know what it felt like to go into the, bike, the bicycle shop. <laughs> All right, what about you, Saul? Um, you know, the, the darkest was, hour with Yeah, they say PG. time heals wounds. So this was two years ago. So even the darkest hours don't feel that bad anymore with, with <laughs> enough time. But I, I our, remember our, some pain, though. Our pain, it was fighting inertia. Mm -hmm. It was hard, you know, the whole bias toward action, we're trying to get these teams to, to get going. You know, they, they would belabor and talk, and all of a sudden, two hours would disappear, and nothing would happen. And so we, we had to, like, shock, shock the system just to get them moving, which is part of the reason why we did the Winnebago, and we just said, let's do some crazy things. But there was, there was one meeting I remember where it was just the energy was down, and they were, they were debating how they should design an open house, you know, when the community would come in, and how would we greet them, and, well, we should do it. No, we should do it. And we said, hey, what? just get up. Get up and act it out. And, and I remember Elizabeth, who I was, I was with, it was scared the hell out of me at the time, but it was genius. She pulls out her phone and says, okay, on three, I'm going to film it. Ready? Act. Okay, go. You're, you're, you're the family. Okay, go. And she starts filming it, and they, they looked up, and I'm looking at her. What are you, what are you doing? And sure enough, they, they reacted, and they started acting out the scene. And within the first one was horrible. And she says, okay, cut. Let's start again. And go. And they got like five repetitions of, I don't even know if she was hitting record. It didn't matter. It forced them to get up and to just do anything. Even doing the wrong thing quickly was, was better than thinking about doing the right thing next week. And so I guess maybe that's another lesson is just do it. Just get started. Even if it's wrong and you know it's wrong, it's still better than talking about doing it right. So, so one of our mentors for all of us is a guy named Perry Claibon who, he, he uh, well, among other things, he invented the modern snowshoe and was CEO of Timbuktu, but he leads executive ed, and Perry's motto to the students is always, don't get ready, get started. So that's a perfect example of it. Okay, Bonnie. Yeah, so for what's your us, dark moment? the darkest moment, as I remember, we were doing this from the bottom up, and these are, these are all hourly crew members. And we had very senior uh, level support at the very executive level, and of course, a, a very excited group here. But we had the folks in the middle. So after eight weeks, where these, um, these crew members are taking time out of their normal job to do this, the managers were getting a little restless. And I was getting calls saying, you know, Joe can't come, this, and that was one of the things, the mandate was that they had the full 12 weeks. And so what we decided to do and, um, was we pulled everyone together and uh, we, they also brought their boss. And this was kind of the lesson here is that I had not properly educated the bosses. Uh, so we brought their boss and I asked our chairman of the board to come in and speak because uh, he had personally endorsed this big change initiative. And he said, um, okay, so tell me, tell me some stories. Tell me, who, you know, some examples, some of the projects. Because we had some small wins. They just hadn't percolated up. So I gave him some stories. So we got up at this conference. And now, the managers still have frowns on their face. 
the, the employees are really excited and they're trying to, and so I'm just watching the bosses here. Uh, our chairman gets up and he says, you know, on my way here, I stopped by uh, Fortune Magazine because they were doing a story on JetBlue. And um, they, they gave me a preview of the, of the article. Why don't I read it to you? So he starts reading this article about JetBlue and how uh, the future of JetBlue, and as it turns out, it was a story that he wrote about JetBlue three years hence and how this small band of employees had, had completely uh, changed JetBlue. So he, he, uh, this was 2009 and, and he said this is 2012. And the pride in those, the employees, it really made a difference. And ironically in 2012, the story actually did come true. Wow. So, so, just, so we're just about ready for questions, but just to follow Bonnie, I didn't even know that part of the story, even though I've written about it before. The technique uh, that, that was used as JetBlue is what we call a success pre-mortem, which is actually a very effective way. It's kind of weird. You imagine you're in the future. It's two or three years from now, and you've succeeded or failed, and you, you imagine what happened. And there's a bunch of evidence that when you look back from the future, rather than saying, gee, what will make me successful or fail in the future, that actually people are much better at working on the details. So I didn't even know that, that you had. Yeah, and it, it honestly, it completely changed people's perspective of it. Um, I, I didn't, you know, I, I was very worried going into that session. We were losing people, and this completely changed. All right. Okay, so I guess we've got some question technology here. How, did, how where, where's my, uh, my people from Lean Startup to get through it? Do we have some questions? Oh, they're here. Oh, let's see, oh. All right, ooh, here we go. This is about Lean. Let's see. Let's, okay. Well, these are also so varied. Um, so, so let's let's start with this one from Christopher. I think this is sort of interesting. So, great examples of design thinking in action. What advice would you give to an organization with existing design practices who want to implement Lean? Does anybody here know anything about Lean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think you're on, Saul. Yeah. yeah. So, I would say. So at Citrix, we we started with design thinking, right? Huge design thinking shop. We're all we're all tied back to the D school with an umbilical cord, and where we we ran into trouble because we 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 replicated the D school. We trained, we trained, we taught, we taught hundreds and hundreds of employees, ran boot camps, and inspired a huge group. But that wasn't that wasn't enough. That there was there was a big jump between kind of getting it, being inspired, doing some workshops and coming up with ideas and actually delivering results, like executing on them. And so we actually started flipping it and said, hey, no more design thinking, we're a design doing shop. And, and that's where we started blending in lean practices. So, so kind of marrying uh, empathy work, really, really understanding your user, empathizing with them and framing a problem that's worth solving to them and the business. And then kind of coupling it with a lot of the lean practices to, to iterate and to experiment and to actually figure out which what's the path forward. So I, I personally think there's a ton of overlap and they're really complementary. Well, so that so one of the things, so those of us, and we've all been involved in the D school, the shortest is like five years and been involved in design thinking implementations. And one sign, and I know from talking to Eric that this is true of, uh, of Lean too, one sign of, of failed implementation, and this follows straight, straight from the scaling literature, is when you do a lot of training and nothing else, what, and, and I have had clients like this who I won't name, what ends up happening 
is they learn how to talk about design thinking but not actually do it. And I know that happens with Lean and it's, and it's sort of a disease where you have a training operation and there's one large famous organization I've worked with for over a decade that has spent, well, a good $20 million on design thinking and I just recently asked them, can you identify one product or service that's been affected by design thinking? And the answer was no. So that's following Saul's part. That's a good example of, of, uh, of failure. Um, which one do you want to do next? What do you th There's uh, one for you there, Bonnie. I yeah, sure. Well, uh, so the question is, what's the best way to enact massive change ahead of a crisis? And would JetBlue have un undertaken the changes if ICE hadn't locked the planes? Now, uh, and this is, it's a, it's a fascinating thing because trying to get large-scale organizational change, it does work best if there's a crisis. There has to be a some type of urgency to change. Now, it doesn't have to be aircraft locked. It could be, you know, profits are dropping or something. Or the senior leadership does have the concept of, look, what would it be if we don't change in some way, shape, or form? The urgency to change, it doesn't have to be a crisis, but the urgency to change, I believe, is one of the key ways to start the process. The second piece is to get those quick wins. I don't think we would have succeeded um, had, now we would have been able to do some small scale things um, without the, the aircraft locking down, and it would have just taken longer because without the, ab with the absence of the, of the urgency to change, you have to start really small and work up. What, we, what the magic was is we did have a, that urgency to change. Now, the, currently, we, we did have such success with that that we're now doing a lot of these types of initiatives and, and looking at things um, completely differently, and you say, look, we need to change that so we're changing the configuration of our aircraft. Uh, and we're using this, some of the same process in terms of the internal aircraft because in the end of the day, if the flight attendants don't buy into the fact that the aircraft configuration has changed, we know it'll fail because we've been through this process to know you gotta pay attention to the employees. So I think for us it was just getting that first win and then doing the small steps. All right. So I, this is a good question. I think all of you can answer this in mm -hmm. different ways. So it says, what, what do you suggest um, for someone who cannot attend IDEO? There's, there's a million places other than IDEO to get design thinking, by the way. To get involved <laughs> in design thinking, books online. So to me, uh, the way I would interpret this, what are the most useful first steps to be involved in design thinking so you actually get better at doing it rather than actually just talking about it? So what about you, Zaina? What, wh where would you start? Um, you know, there are books by David Kelly and Tim Brown. Um, that is a really, I mean, the design school uh, is a great place to start. Um, the IDEO has IDEOU, which has classes uh, that anyone can take. Uh, so that, that is, I'd say that's the number one place to start. Yeah. There's other places too. There's other, I mean, without, you can get them on yeah. free, you know, relatively free with Coursera and edX and a few of those other ones. Um, but the key here, I don't, whether you buy a book or you do, whether it, you know, and it's just the same thing applies on lean. Get a little bit of the basic and get started. It's just that's about right. getting started. Yep. Yeah. That's what I, I it's messy. I, I, not to say don't buy the book, buy Eric's book. What I'm saying is it, unless you start practicing it, until you start building yes, muscle right. memory, it's academic, right? Unless you start applying yeah. it and run to the challenges and the problems. So don't wait too long before you try it. There's tons of vendors, there's tons of online to, to give you a taste to get started. Uh -huh. Just do it, just get going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> gonna, so, so I mean, just on that point, so one of our heroes is actually, he's in, he's in uh, David Kelly's book, he's in, he's in um, our book on scaling up excellence. There's a guy named Doug Dietz at General Electric uh -huh. 
who, incredible hero, what, what Doug did was he, he actually des designs those sort of scanning machines, like MRIs and like that for General Electric, and he actually went and saw how horrible for little kids going through that. Is this working? Yeah. For little kids going through that. And what he did was, without permission, he started prototyping a better experience for kids who were going through it. And the result, I've got my, oh, my expert, oh, thank you. <laughs> Zane is a filmmaker, by the way, so she knows what she's doing. So, so the, 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 result of, the result of that is now, some 10 years later, there's, um, there's, there's uh, uh, 15 or uh, 20 hospitals that have bought a total of about 100 different rooms for General Electric patients, mm -hmm. little kids, sure. where they have this kind of adventure that's really cool. And I've got a lot of microphones here. Okay, so we're in our final 40 seconds. I believe I'm ending in time. And any, okay, so let's, let's, see, let's do, okay, I love this. I got two, I don't think it's working. Okay, so let's, let's do, in 30 seconds or less, since we're running out of time, starting with Bonnie, what's the most important organizational change lesson you would leave with the group? Uh, the most important one is start with the people who actually are going to be living with the change later. So uh, you can't do it from the top down. If, uh, because if they own it, they will carry it on. Uh, I'll, I'll say the big, big lesson for me was it's balancing. Balancing the top-down uh, commitment, the metric setting, you know, the, the condition setting from the top with the bottom-up cultural movements, the, the inspiring and recognition programs. And then I would say balance the teaching with the doing. Uh, don't over-rotate on teach, teach as many people as you can in your company. Get some results. Do some design doing. Get some things you can talk about and drive around the company and cheat. Bring in IDEO, bring in help if you need to, but get some wins that you can story tell throughout. So balance top down, bottom up, and, and the teach do. I think the thing you're hearing now is uh, we have something that's similar across all of our, our organizations, which is a, a group of people that typically don't work together working together. Get, get someone from, and this, we're not just talking cross department, just heads, we're talking get uh, someone who's an entry level person and get person who's an executive and get another person, um, get them working together and collaborate in an unconventional way, um, in a very non-hierarchical way. But the key thing, without the person at the top giving some sort of validity to the work or support, it's, it's not going to go anywhere. So the person at the top has to give their buy-in. All right, so I believe in ending on time. So thank you to the panel. Thank you all for showing up.